Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in Studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary. So happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. We have today a remarkable guest to share with you. My guest is one of only three men to travel to the moon twice. He's accrued more than 715 hours in space. He's seen more than 260 sunrises from space. He possesses the record farthest distance traveled by a human being ever from Earth. He's the recipient of the Congressional Space Medal of Honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, was Time Magazine Man of the Year, along with two of his Apollo 8 crewmates. He became a household name again three decades later when he made a guy named Tom Hanks famous as Ron Howard made a little film about their flight called Apollo 13. This gentleman is a husband. He's a father of four. He is our guest today. His name is Captain Jim Lovell. Jim Lovell is truly a hero, and I'm so honored to have him on our show. So my friends, buckle up, open up your minds and hearts and eyes a little wider. Look up and bring on to uh, our Live Inspired podcast, Captain Jim Lovell. Jim, welcome to our show. Well, John, that was quite an introduction, and I appreciate that being on your show. Well, man, it's an honor to have you. And uh, for those who somehow have made it to this point in their life without hearing of the Apollo 13, the movie, or the, uh, the, the the actual venture that spawned it. Give them a snapshot of uh, of the journey that you've had through your life to this point. Tell, tell us how you uh, how you ended up on the Apollo 13 by first backing into it. Y- you were fascinated uh, as a young boy in space and in rocketry, I understand. Talk a little bit about that, of, of being a kid, being interested in space. Well, I often uh, tell people uh, how the, uh, you know, a poor boy from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, ended up going to the moon. It's a, it's a quite a long and uh, a story that has many surprise endings and, and uh, openings and closings. Uh, you know, it was, uh, as a matter of fact, I was born in 1928. That was a year after Lindbergh made the uh, his famous crossing to uh, Paris by airplane. And I was growing up in the early 30s, and during the 30s, the boys of 
love by age and things like that were fantastically interested in, in airplanes. And this was the thing in those days. We read about airplanes. We built airplane models. We we went to movies about airplanes, and uh, we had uh, heroes like Lindbergh that we follow on airplanes. And that's essentially what I wanted to do as mm-hmm. I as I started to grow up in the in my early years. You had an uncle, I believe, who also flew. Is that correct? That that is correct. It was the one incentive, of course. Uh, with all the airplane information that I had, and my uncle, who was the 58th Naval Aviator, uh, that during that period of my life, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a, uh, 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 airplane pilot, and I wanted to be in the Naval Aviator, as a matter of fact. And I had set my goals early in my, uh, grade school years and early high school years to do that. Well, Jim, I think you practice what you preach. I, I read a story about you as a young boy uh, launching your very own Saturn V, if you will, into the heavens. I, I heard you built your own rocket as a kid. Is there some truth behind this? Well, it's true. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I started in high school, about my second year, I suddenly became also interested in rockets. Now, this was my high school years were during World War II, from 42 to 40, uh, 46. And uh, we started to learn a little bit about uh, rockets from the from the uh, Soviets, they were, or from the Germans, I should say. And uh, I had become really interested in, in rockets, and I can't tell you why at that age. I did, as a, about my second year in high school, picked up a uh, pamphlet called the... Uh, uh, a method of reaching extreme altitudes mm-hmm. uh, by by a man by the name of Robert Goddard, who was a, a quote a rocket engineer of some sort. Anyway, he studied rockets, and that pamphlet was written in 1913. And uh, I didn't understand a lot of it, uh, but it got me fantastically interested in rockets. And uh, as I went along, I heard read more about what the Germans were doing. Then we had our own rockets that were starting to be developed now in 43 and 44. And uh, and so a friend of mine, uh, we decided to build a rocket. And we <laughs> built it out of a, a mailing tube and a nose cone and a, and a little engine that we had, just just a piece of wood. It was just carved, a rock, rocket uh, you know, flaring of, of an engine. And we packed it with uh, what we know now as gunpowder, which is, <laughs> right. I couldn't believe it. The ingredients turned out to be gunpowder. We packed it tightly. And uh, and one day, uh, just uh, in, a, in a field, we, I had a straw full of, uh, of gunpowder to light it and a uh, welder's helmet to protect my head and <laughs> lit it. The thing uh, flew up to about 80 feet and blew up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're, you're lucky it blew up up in the sky, not in your face. Uh, there are a lot of That's people right. saying that. I back. was very, very fortunate later on. I should have known better than that. But that, of course, uh, you know, in those high school formative years, you know, suddenly rocket power got to be really what I thought I want to study or do uh, in, uh, in my life. And uh, although aviation was still... Uh, really important to me. I wrote to the uh, American Rocket Society about middle of my last year 
uh, to the secretary. And I asked him, uh, well, what, uh, what do I have to do to become a rocket engineer? Mm -hmm. And uh, what schools and things like that? And he wrote back, he said, well, colleges don't have that as a major uh, uh, study at this time. But if you take uh, uh, mechanics and uh, uh, you know everything like that, uh, uh, mathematics and uh, thermodynamics, uh, I'm sure you'll be well versed, and people will start to hire you for this blooming of uh, study and uh, uh, exploration of uh, rocket technology. Uh, and then in the last paragraph, he said. By the way, I think you should go to MIT or, or Caltech, which perhaps has the best studies at that particular time. Uh, well, I didn't have the money to do that. Right. In fact, I lived in a one-room apartment uh, with my mother. My father died when I was 11. The room was so small that I slept on the couch. My, my mother had one of those folding beds that folded back into the wall. And the uh, kitchen was another opening door with a uh, sink and a, you know, a ice box. And, mm -hmm. a, and, a, and, and then the, <laughs> the, uh, the bathroom was down the hall with the other people. So, uh, but, you know, about age, I didn't realize how poor I was. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I, your, your father dies when you are a young boy. I think it's 1933. It's the height of the Great Depression, leaving your mother by herself, raising you. Uh, how, how did you get through during those days? Do you, do you remember what it was like as a kid growing up without a dad in the middle of the Great Depression? Well, fortunately, she had a brother who was a manager of a, a furnace company, and he hired her as uh, his uh, uh, secretary, receptionist. So that provided just enough money uh, to keep us going during that that period, and uh, but you know I, I I really didn't realize how poor I was. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, when as as high school started to be completed, my mother said, "Well, write to the Naval Academy. Your uncle went there, you know, and if that's free, why don't you just try to get in?" I, I said, I, "I certainly will." I went to wrote to the Naval Academy and. Tried to visit my congressman, and uh, when I finally got the results back, I was third alternate. Mm. That meant that the principal plus two other people had to fail before I could get in. And so, you know, towards the approaching of my uh, of, of my high school career, things looked looked pretty grim. I mean. Uh, no money to go to, no, no, uh, no uh, student loans in those days. Yes. Uh, and I, I just wondered what I was going to do. So what, what changed? What happened next? Well, you know, it's one of these things that every once in a while in a person's life, a miracle happens. <laughs> you don't plan it. You don't think about it. You don't think it's going to come. But it did. It seems that the Navy after World War II... Uh, suddenly found themselves short of naval aviators. Most of the people they trained during the war, young men, and they went to sea as pilots and everything like that, but when the war was over, they didn't want to make the Navy their career, and so they uh, were discharged and they left the Navy. 
And so the Navy, uh, the Bureau of Personnel of the Navy, by the, and a fellow was the name of Admiral Holloway, came up with a solution. He thought, well, why don't we uh, recruit uh, senior high school boys and see if they want to become naval aviators? And the plan was uh, really, to my ears, was fantastic. The Navy would send you after graduation from high school. Mm-hmm. They would they would send you to, and you passed the physical and you passed the attitude aptitude test. They would send you to any college that you wanted to go to, as long as you were going to take an engineering degree, mm. and that would be for two years. And if and they they promote you to uh, to seamen. <laughs> I guess it was the second class or something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took it immediately, but then I went to college for two years. Now the next phase was they would send you after two years of college if you passed everything and you were still wanted to go. They'd send you down to Pensacola to go through flight training to get your wings. And I was very happy that what I was doing. But suddenly I got word and a set of orders from the Bureau of Personnel uh, in the Navy that for some reason the alternate or the principal where I was the alternate had failed and do you want to still go to the Naval Academy? Well, that put me in a dilemma. Yes. I had two years of college. I already was on the way to get a, be a Naval Aviator. What else could I ask for? And the, and after I, they sent me back to my last two years of college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided that, no, I'm not going to do that. My young officers that were teaching me said, you know, you'll be two years behind the people that are graduating right now. And, and, and as soon as you get your wings and spend six months out to sea as a midshipman, uh, you'll be promoted to ensign, regular Navy, and they'll send you back to college. So I was going to turn the whole thing down, but then uh, really an old trusty captain who was the head of the the ground training heard about my plight and pulled me aside. And he said, a young man, he said, sit down. He said, "Uh, do you want to make the Navy your career? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, get your ass up to the Naval Academy and get education while you can. We don't know how long this program is going to last. And so I did. Packed my bags. Went, went to the Naval Academy. You, uh, I believe, graduated out in 1952. In that same year, you married a little girl named Marilyn Lilly. Talk about Marilyn Lilly. Well, I had known Marilyn Lilly since she was 14 years old. She was a freshman at high school. I was a junior. The school was very small. I could not find a junior girl to take to the prom, which was required. So uh, I was then allowed to ask anybody else I wanted to. So I asked this young girl. She said she didn't know how to dance. And I said, well, I don't either. So we will try it together. I took her there. And then after that first date, I guess... You know, I really liked her. I saw her, of course, in school all the time and took her out again to movies. We went out to have a hamburger. I got to, we went out with other friends. And through my last two years of college or high school and 
her first few years of high school, uh, she and I pretty much uh, were together dating and things like that. Uh, but then, of course, uh, I went, first of all, to try to get into the program. I went to Wisconsin for two years. And while I was there, I invited her up a couple of times to go to the various dances at the university, and and we got together. Then when I went down to fight training to begin with, uh, before I got to the academy, uh, she, uh, we sort of still corresponded. But then when I went to the academy, I uh, was down there... In, uh, now in, uh, in Annapolis, and uh, she, by this time, uh, was finishing up high school and was going to uh, Milwaukee State Teachers College. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the latter part of my freshman year at the academy, I wrote her a letter. I said, you know, funny thing, uh, midshipmen tend to marry East Coast girls. Mm. And I guess she took the hint. Uh, she transferred her credits from uh, Milwaukee State Teachers College to George Washington University. She packed her bags, went to Washington, had a friend in Washington where she could room with, got a job at, depart- at Garfinkel's department store, and from then on, the last three years of my Naval Academy training, uh, she and I had dated, you know, on weekends. Jim, uh, you, you've been dating for decades since, we're going to go through this story here in a while of things you've done professionally and um, that are historically relevant and important still. But I'm curious, in all of the various things that you have done, many, many, many of them dangerous, did she ever say, Jim, not this time, man, stop. Not, you're, not, you're not taking that flight. You're not going to become a test pilot. You're not going to become an astronaut. You're not, you're not going to go back up there again. Did she ever kind of put her foot down? No, as a matter of fact, not. She knew that this was my desire, this is my love of my profession, and things were dangerous. Uh, things were dangerous, you know, testing airplanes, and <laughs> things were dangerous when I first went to sea after I got my wings at mm-hmm. the Naval Academy, and I was a night fighter pilot on a ship called the Shangri-La. And, uh, you know, flying off of carriers at night hadn't really been perfected yet. <laughs> and that was one of our jobs, and... Uh, but she lived through the We, Of course, as you probably know, we had four children over the years. But uh, uh, then when I finally applied for uh, test pilot school, and I got through that, and then went down, and I finally uh, was offered to go uh, into the space program. And, of course, I was rejected the first time. And then I was asked the second time, and I got through. And she hung with me like a good Navy wife. She would, uh, you know, she was in there. I uh, knew uh, exactly what the requirements were and and uh, was a faithful companion all these times. Jim, s- sneaking towards seven decades, it's a, a fairly significant time period to be married. Uh, what do you consider some of the secrets to a healthy marriage? Well, I think one of the secrets is uh, get married early. I mean, <laughs> uh, we were married early, uh, and we, uh, I, I didn't, you know, through high school or, or college or, or, or after I was a naval officer, before I was married, I would be dating various people. I think it gets tougher and tougher to pick out somebody uh, that you uh, really want to spend your life with. But at 14 and I was 16, you know, I didn't think of anything else. I, it was just natural. 
to uh, to be with her and to do things together and to uh, you know really have the joys of the sorrows. As a matter of fact, uh, my junior at the Naval Academy, when she was there one one weekend, and uh, you know I, I we were walking down the street on a on a Saturday night, and we happened to stop by the jewelry store, and I. But we looked in the window, and there were engagement rings that uh, were pertaining to the Naval Academy engagement rings. And I said to, to her, I said, Marilyn, which, which one would you like here? Hmm. And she looked at me, and she said, well, are you, are you proposing to me? I had no idea that she didn't know I was going to not marry her. And, uh, it was, you know... So, you know, I thought, wasn't that a foretold vision uh, <laughs> five years ago or something right, like that? Right. So that's how, so yeah, that's, a, so, you know, if you know them for a long term and you're happy with them, and we had lots of arguments over those seven years, uh, you know, but we stay together. Well, I'm, I certainly am glad you have, and, and you've gone through some wild adventures together, including not only being a test pilot, which is in, in and of itself its own podcast, but you eventually get selected among, I think, three other guys to enter into this new uh, potential astronaut candidacy program. T- talk a little bit about that, Jim. Well, I had just finished uh, test pilot school, and I was assigned to a uh, one of the divisions of, of uh, the test center called uh, uh, Electronics Test. Uh, when uh, the same things happened, or different things happened in Washington, this is 1958, uh, the old NACA, uh, which uh, this organization of uh, the government sort of uh, uh, was involved with uh, helping uh, the aircraft industry on new airplanes and things like that in, in development of them, uh, suddenly became NASA which also wanted to think about putting a man in space, which was the coming attraction of rocketry over the years that I was flying airplanes. Uh, more and more people were looking at rockets, doing more and more things, and, and the Soviets were definitely looking at putting uh, a man in uh, Earth orbit. And so NASA decided they wanted to try the same thing. Uh, they were developing a uh, this... A, the uh, ICBM, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what was it called? I, Atlas. That was called the Atlas at that time. And they thought, well, we could build a spacecraft, and we'll call it Mercury, and uh, we'll put it on top of that Atlas and see if we can't do that. But uh, who should we have for, who should we put into that? Pro- <laughs> into that? And uh, there were various suggestions, uh, you know, stunt pilots from the movie industry, uh, double amputees because you can save weight because legs weren't required on that particular program. Uh, but it was Eisenhower that made the suggestion to take uh, test pilots. They had security clearances, and they uh, were able to uh, uh, do new things because tested airplanes, of course, so all sorts of things can happen, and they could also happen in spacecraft. So NASA then ordered or requested requested from the Air Force and the Navy pilots that had certain criteria that they were looking for, uh, including test pilot work and uh, 
uh, certain ages and uh, weights and uh, heights and uh, uh, things like like that. Education, of course, and graduates of a test pilot school. And so uh, I put out requirements for that. And uh, of course, the Navy came to uh, uh, to where I was and uh, at, at at the test center and. I, uh, they asked me if I was interested, and I said yes, and so I applied. And uh, it turned out that it, over the period of time, we first were in, had lectures on it, but the 140 people who were originally selected went down to 32. And in the next month or so, the 32, which I was one of them, uh, reported to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Loveless Clinic, uh, for uh, physicals. Uh, to see if we were qualified for the kind of work. And uh, out of the 32 people that took their physical for the Mercury program, and I took my physical with the likes of John Glenn and Alan Shepard, Wally Sherrod, Deke mm-hmm. Slayton, uh, I was the only guy to flunk. Mm. I flunked. I had a high Billy Rubin. I didn't know what it was. I, I know now it's a pink pigment in your blood. Uh, but... Uh, so uh, I was uh, sent home early, and of course, out of the remaining thirty-one, they picked the original seven. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you and don't... I went back testing a uh, plane now that uh, uh, was quite famous, the Phantom F four, that was yes. the basic airplane in Vietnam. You eventually come out of the Phantom, though. You get in her back into the space program somehow through grace, a little bit of good luck, and. Uh, your hard work and discipline, you end up on Gemini 7. Re- remind the folks what Gemini 7 was all about. Uh, well, uh, we were planning to go to the moon, and so the Gemini program was almost concurrent with the Apollo program, or maybe I should say it the other way around. Apollo was being developed at concurrent with the Gemini program. Gemini had to go first because we had to prove certain things before we could go to the moon. Now, one of the things was could could uh, uh, humans live in zero gravity for two weeks, which was planned the, the most time on a lunar flight uh, up there and back. And so, Gemini Seven was designed to see about that. Uh, it uh, we were in space for two weeks. We had twenty three different physical or uh, experiments that we had to do. Uh, and uh, and concurrent with that was going to be the first rendezvous of two spacecraft, mm-hmm. which were both were done quite well. Uh, uh, the two-week mission was fine. You know, a lot of people didn't think that we could live for two weeks in zero gravity because we evolved under gravity. So right. isn't the, the body somehow tied to gravity? I mean, breathing or blood flow or something like that? And it turns out it wasn't. Uh, we were successful there, and that was one of the criteria that had to be checked off before we uh, could even think about going to the moon. So you, you spend 14 days in orbit. I think you orbit 206 times or so. Remind us, because you said it almost in passing that uh, it was about going to the moon, and you've mentioned uh, the Russians a couple times. Why did going to the moon matter? What is all this even about? Well, at that time, uh, there was a, a, a race going on. I mean, uh, in, in some respects, it was favorable. It was positive. 
of the Russians had already uh, uh, started to put people up into space. Uh, they put uh, Yuri Gagarin up uh, before we even put anybody up. Uh, we had the Mercury flights, uh, and uh, first was just three orbits around the around the Earth with John Glenn, and then we've expanded it very slowly. But uh, we haven't done much on the, on the Mercury, and uh, except knowing that people could spend you know some time into space, and and if we could successfully put someone up into space and get it back safely, and that was the whole thing of Mercury. Uh, uh, Gemini had to uh, go beyond that to really find out what was uh, what man could do to help in the flight of going to the moon. And of course, this is 1961 when our Mercury's first got started, and uh, uh, Russia seemed to be so much ahead of us uh, that uh, uh, we seemed to be like a second-class uh, uh, technical country, uh, and I think it was uh, President Kennedy had to really do something, and he made a very bold statement back in 1961 about that we planned to go to the moon yes. and come back safely. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses, several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival, on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this and do it right, and do it first before this dictator's out, then we must be bold. So uh, that started it all out. Now, whether he really believed that or not, I, I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, he, he died before we accomplished his objective. But, uh, you know, uh, that's what he's set up for. And, and so it's amazing how American ingenuity and American management uh, can take a commitment like that and see it through. Jim, I'm, I'm curious. It's one of my favorite talks. It's one of the talking points I wanted to ask you about today. Do you remember where you were on September 12th when Kennedy spoke those words, we choose the moon? Uh, do you remember where you were? And do you remember whether or not you believed it was possible? Yes. Well, I was, I was home and I was listening to it on, on television. Uh, but, and you have to remember that in my early age, rockets were the thing for me. And I had, uh, you know, gone all the way through test pilot school, selected to be an astronaut, rejected, hmm. uh, watched the other guys in Project Mercury. You know, and then in 61, you know, before uh, Kennedy, or before uh, Glenn went up, there he's talking about going to the moon. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something I always wanted to do. 
Saturn V. Tell the folks who are unfamiliar with what that vehicle is, how large it is. Well, the Saturn V was really the, uh, a prime example of a good rocket technology. It was over 300 feet tall. Right. Uh, it, it had uh, uh, 7.5 million pounds of thrust. It was a, a, a liquid oxygen and a, and a gasoline engine. Uh, or there were five initial engines. Uh, I think there was something like uh, uh, 16 million I forget exactly the the thrust mm-hmm. of five. And a, I know one one thing. I I think it burned five and a half million uh, pounds of fuel a, yes. uh, a minute or something like that. It was it was something awful. But it was it was an old <laughs> man's rocket compared to Gemini and the Titan vehicle, which I flew first. The Titan, of course, was a leftover from the ICBMs, and it was you know you knew you were flying one of those things. Uh, because at the end of the second stage, it was a two-stage vehicle, Uh, just before the engine stopped, you were pulling eight Gs Mm. into your seat, and suddenly the engine stopped at once we were in orbit, and and, uh, you went to zero. Uh, Amazing. The the, the Saturn V, in the meantime, took off very, very slowly, slowly built up Gs, the maximum loading on the first stage of that was about four Gs, but then on the second and third stages, the trajectory was such that it was almost not even one G. So mm. it was a, it was called the old man's rocket. <laughs> well, Matt, I don't think there's anything old manny about it. At some point, though, Jim, was there a moment while you are getting ready to go back into space where you were thinking to yourself, uh, "This is not a good idea, man. I'm going to be sitting on top." of, what, 16 million tons of rocket fuel. I'm 360 feet up in the air. They're launching me up into the heavens. No one's ever really been up there before. Was 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 there a moment when you thought, maybe I'm going to let, uh, maybe I'll let some other astronaut try this one out? Never. This is what I wanted to do. This is, uh, you know, matter of fact, the opposite was true. You know, we're all vying for flights. <laughs> uh, you know, knowing that the, it was risky, and maybe after the first uh, four or five, uh, well, we had uh, six successful Gemini flights mm-hmm. and uh, three or four successful Apollo flights. Uh, you know, people were getting a sort of a blasé about it. And uh, so were the astronauts. We all wanted to go to land on the moon. We all wanted to be the first to land on the moon. And there was... Uh, competition between us. Do you remember where you were on Christmas Eve, 1968? <laughs> I was there. <laughs> I was out of this world. Talk about uh, it. I was orbiting the moon and uh, looking at the Earth for the very first time, 240,000 miles away. And, uh, and that's when my thoughts about life and everything else sort of changed a little bit. Talk about that, Jim. I'm, I'm curious when you are in the heavens, when you are floating, when you are on the far side of the moon and coming back around, how does that change a man? Well, uh, there I was. Uh, we, we got into lunar orbit there and we first went around and we first of all looked to the far side of the moon because we'd never seen the far side alive before. And then finally we came around, I think it was the Third orbit when everything was in position, and we suddenly saw the 
Earth come up out of the lunar horizon. And, of course, you've all seen that very famous picture that Anders took. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But that sort of, you know, got me to thinking because the photograph was taken with a telephoto lens. So the uh, Earth is uh, somewhat bigger than it really is by by the eye. And as I looked at it, just 240,000 miles away, I began to... I begin to philosophize a little bit because I got to say, you know, we're only as, uh, you know, uh, our, our world, our world is only as far as the eyes can see. You know, now when we're in, a, uh, in the countryside, our world is, is restricted from mountains or hills or trees. And in the city, you know, I, I think uh, buildings, you know, define our mm-hmm. world. And when you're in a room, the walls uh, around you uh, it consists of our whole world. I mean, you can't go past that. But suddenly I'm 240,000 miles out. Mm. I'm, I'm looking at an Earth, a little, small, blue and white body. And when I put my thumb up to the window, mm. I can completely hide it. I can completely hide that Earth. Just think, mm. there were six million or six or maybe five billion in those days, people on a planet behind my thumb. Mm. Everything I ever knew was behind my thumb. And my world suddenly expanded to infinity. Out there, there was the Earth, 240,000 miles away. And I got to think a little bit more about really what our position was in 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 uh, in space, and I thought, well, I'm looking at this little world. It's just a small planet, just one of nine in our solar system, and it's a mere speck, a mere speck in the Milky Way galaxy of ours, and it's lost to oblivion in the universe. Mm. And I thought to myself, you know, I often heard this saying, "I hope to go to die." Well, uh, I hope to go to heaven when I die. I actually went to heaven when I was born. <laughs> because look, I, I arrived on a planet of the proper mass to have the gravity to clean water and an atmosphere, the very essentials for life. I arrived on a planet at just the proper distance from a star not too far to be too hot or too cold, in too close to be too hot, just from a proper distance to absorb that star's energy, energy that caused life to evolve here in the beginning. Mm. Uh, so I thought to myself, I'm pretty lucky. And then if you want to contain that and you're of somewhat of a religious nature, you can say that mankind or that, that God is given mankind really a stage upon which to perform and how that program is going to turn out mm. up to us. Well, it's an important stage to own for all of us. And uh, you uh, you owned that through the radio on Christmas Eve, uh, 1968, when you read from Genesis. Uh, now approaching uh, Lunar Sunrise and uh, for all the people Back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a ferment in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the ferment. And divided the waters which were under the ferment from the waters which were above the ferment. And it was so. And God called the ferment heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called these seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. Was that something you planned before taking off, or was it just something that you were moved to do? We were moved to do something of that nature, being around the moon on Christmas Eve, uh, but we couldn't think of what to say. Uh, and consequently, to a friend uh, that uh, one of the uh, PR people at NASA had, he was a newspaper man, but guy by the name of Ed Leighton, uh, we asked him to write what we could possibly say. And he spent an evening trying to figure out what we could say, but it turned out to be that his wife, who asked him what he was doing, and he told her that she said, tell them to read the first ten verses of Genesis from the Old Testament. That's exactly what they should do on Christmas Eve, 1968, on uh, the first orbit of the moon. Jim, you, you had your smoothest uh, space trip on Apollo 8. You had your rockiest, roughest, and most infamous now on Apollo 13. Do, do you remember the moment when it went from being another uh, typical trip to the moon to being completely different? Well, yes, when you look back at it now, Apollo 13 was actually a... Uh, uh, a, a a plague that was put upon it uh, with bad omens and bad luck. Mm. It, it was it was bad from the beginning. Uh, Apollo 13, years before it was to fly, uh, during its construction, had a, uh, a, a broken uh, liquid oxygen tank stored aboard, built on it. In other mm -hmm. words, Tank was stored uh, was dropped at the factory floor during just prior to its delivery to NASA. Uh, they picked it up, checked it thoroughly for everything it had to do going to the moon, uh, but they failed to check the tubing in the tank, whose sole purpose yes. was to remove 
liquid oxygen during a pre-flight test, uh, not going to the moon at all, but just during a test. And uh, it was damaged, which they didn't know about. And uh, so the tank was uh, originally scheduled for Apollo 10, and since it was delayed, it went to Apollo 13. Uh, and uh, uh, and we had, had sent it down there for for the flight. And actually, uh, <laughs> two weeks uh, uh, before the flight to go, uh, the go, we did the last test on the spacecraft. It was already set to, to charge. Everything was done to it sitting on top of that Saturn, the uh, launch complex. And we did a final test called a countdown demonstration test, which uh, uh, checked everything on the spacecraft, basically, during the countdown. The things would go on at the proper time. The internal power would come up. The guidance system would come online. Uh, oxygen would start flowing uh, to the tank to pressurize the spacecraft and things like that. Uh, that test was completely... Uh, okay, it passed everything, it was just all set to go. After the test was over, uh, ground crew went in to secure the spacecraft, and of course one of their jobs was to remove the liquid oxygen, and when they tried on the damaged tank, which they didn't know was damaged, mm -hmm. uh, they couldn't remove it. But uh, they had thought that uh, the tank uh, was secure to put... 65-volt ground power to sort of uh, boil the oxygen out because back in 1965, NASA had requested the manufacturer to replace the 28-volt thermostats, which the spacecraft flew with a 28-volt system, to replace it with 65-volt thermostats because we they were available at the Cape. And if the ground crew only wanted to check one thing at a time instead of turning on the entire spacecraft, they could just use the 65-volt power, even though the spacecraft used 28-volt power to do all the jobs. So when the tank wouldn't be uh, uh, emptied in the normal manner, and they realized that there were 60-volt thermostats to protect the tank, they turned on the power, but <laughs> there were not 65-volt thermostats. Mm -hmm. The, uh, uh, the manufacturer failed to put them on, uh, and NASA failed to follow up on their request. And so uh, the 65-volt power soon turned up the heat in the liquid oxygen tank. And remember, it, it, you know, that liquid oxygen is at about a minus 200-something. Mm. It boiled off all the oxygen, but it also uh, damaged completely the wiring and the heater system and everything like that. Uh, to expose the wires, essentially, that made it uh, uh, viable as a potential problem for a fire. Uh, but, every, but, that, but that incident was not recorded, was not expected. They, uh, the accident was completely unobserved, and they thought everything was fine. And then a day before the flight, uh, that tank was again filled up with liquid oxygen, and, of course, uh, it was a bomb ready to go off. Well, it goes off when you are 100,000 miles or so away from the Earth, the, the nearest gas station. W when did you realize, uh, wow, this is, um, this is serious and you, you got to not only be on, but it's time to start praying and saying goodbye to your wife and your heart and, and uh, 
you really had some great angst on what was going to take place next on that on that launch. Well, of course, the explosion occurred on April 13th. Like I said, it was uh, plagued with bad omens. Uh, we had just finished a TV program, uh, uh, or actually, uh, yeah, a TV program going back down to the earth, which <laughs> nobody carried it, <laughs> uh, of the three networks that we had. Didn't have Fox and, and CNN in those days. Uh, so right now it became one of, uh, of uh, the third landing on the moon to one of uh, survival. And, uh, and when we, I finally, uh, so to look at things in the command module and our warning lights started to come on. We lost, uh, first of all, two out of three of our fuel cells that produced electricity for us. And uh, that meant that automatically the landing was off, although the one fuel cell still going was okay. It had provided enough electrical power to get, get us just around the moon and back again. Uh, but then uh, further examination of the instrument panel, I saw that on the quantity gauges of the, of uh, uh, my uh, two liquid oxygen tanks that one of the gauges read absolute zero, mm. and then I saw the other gauge, the needle start to cool down very slowly, and then uh, to finally confirm that, when I looked out the window, I saw gas escaping from the rear of my spacecraft. I knew that uh, not only uh, were we not going to land on the moon, but this if we get back, we're going to be very, very lucky because uh, that gas escaping meant that uh, we lose all of our oxygen uh, to breathe. And when we did that, of course, also we used oxygen to produce electricity in the fuel cell. We lose the fuel cell. That means we lose all our electrical power. And since we use electrical power to control and gimbal our rocket engine, we lose the entire propulsion system we were in serious, serious trouble. At the time of the explosion, we were some 200,000 miles from Earth, going in the wrong direction, and we were 90 hours from Earth because knowing that we had to go around the moon to get back home again, and it was going to take 90 hours to do it. But uh, the spacecraft had inside it uh, an oxygen tank and a battery that was only used for the final plunge through the Earth's atmosphere which would be just in minutes, not in hours. And so uh, it appeared uh, that it would be pretty drastic, and which led us to the conclusion that the only way we could possibly get home was to use that lunar module. Yes. job was not to go home, but land on the moon for only a two-day voyage. You know, we, we could spend hours talking through the difficulties you faced and the ways that you rose above it. And I would encourage the folks to check out the book that you wrote. It's called Apollo 13. It is phenomenal. And there's, of course, a movie by Ron Howard that is also remarkably well done. I'm curious, though, when you are three men, 200,000 miles away from home, with little chance of successfully returning there, how do you keep a right mind, not only internally, but also how do you keep it as a team? How, how did you keep from infighting and uh, finger pointing and, and losing your cool? Well, when the explosion first occurred, we didn't know really exactly what our danger was, although we found out quite quickly. And then we had no solutions at all as to what to do, except the fact that we knew we were going to lose oxygen pretty soon. But I have to tell you, in any kind of a situation like this, 
you have to keep your cool. You have to have a positive attitude. If I curled up in a uh, in a position waiting for a emergency to happen, you know, I would still be there waiting for that emergency to happen. Mm. And so what I did was the, the three of us got together and said, okay, what's good, what's bad? Fortunately, we had the communications with the ground, and the ground also looked at everything, what we could do. We looked at the condition of the lunar module. Uh, it had plenty of oxygen so far. You know, we were supposed to land and stay on the moon for a while. And, uh, we, we had a propulsion system that was going to be used to land on the moon, but now we'd have to use it to land somehow to come back home again. And one of the big criteria that we had to think about was the fact that we were on a course now that that would not. Uh, it was a long and lengthy orbit, and the return of that orbit back to Earth was not in a position to make a safe landing back on the Earth. But the closest point of approach to the Earth would be about forty thousand miles out, which would mean that we'd end up in, over a period of time in a long and lengthy orbit, two hundred forty thousand miles to the apogee, back to the Earth at forty thousand miles. So we had to get on back on our orbit that would successfully make us go through the atmosphere and make a landing. And all these things we had to do. So fortunately, between the ground and the flight crew, we, one by one, we determined what was, what was necessary and what we had to do to overcome it. If, did you turn toward prayer or was it, no, man, we worked like dogs. We planned it all out. We lean into our math. We lean into the guys down there in Houston and, and uh, Florida and around us, the smartest minds around them. I'm curious, when the odds are that long, literally, you're on the far side of the moon again. Uh, wh- how do you respond to it, Jim? Well, we didn't respond to prayer. I mean, that was just wasting time at that time. <laughs> We had to step back and start thinking what we had on board uh, to overcome. Uh, and here's some of the things we had. We had to figure out how to get back on the proper course to get back home again. We had to realize what we had to save because we had electrical things going, what we had to turn off and what we had to you know, use uh, manually. I mean, we couldn't use the computer because it was using too much fuel. We couldn't use the control system automatically because it was using, I mean, too much electrical power. Uh, we had to figure out what we had to save. Uh, we had to look at the fact that uh, we are now three men uh, in a lunar module because the de- command module was dead, which included the environmental control system. And every time that the three of us took a exhale of breath, that was carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide in the lunar module was designed to only support, I mean, to remove the carbon dioxide with uh, the lithium hydroxide canisters were only designed enough of them to support two men for two days and we were three men for four days. And uh, so, you know, we're slowly being poisoned by our own exhalation if there was some way that we could get, get rid of the carbon dioxide. And that meant looking back at the dead command module and its environmental system and the fact that it had lithium hydroxide canisters in that system, unfortunately they were square, and the lunar module had round or oblong canisters, which meant how do we jury rig a square canister to a, a lunar module system, and that had to all be worked out. 
And uh, those are the things that we had to look at uh, from the time the explosion occurred. Yeah, I, we don't want to give away the ending, but it's there's a high likelihood that somehow you figure these things out, that with your team and with your wit, you make it back down. I'm curious, do you remember what it felt like to splash down safely? Uh, yes, that's that's why one by one we had to come back. The last really uh, uh, program or the problem we had, uh, crisis I might say, that we had no control over, the pyrotechnics that uh, that put out the three parachutes, uh, essentially, uh, that would make our landing successful, uh, where it had been cold soap for four days because normally they'd stay warm with the electrical power we had, but we had to turn all that off. So uh, we had a hope upon hope that being so cold that they would still fire, which they did, which we landed uh, in the Pacific, uh, and, uh, very, you know, thankfully we all looked at each other, uh, that we made it. And it was a joint effort, as a matter of fact, really one of which I, uh, to this day, I admire the cooperation and the coordination of teams working together. Jim, I have four children and all of us are fascinated in looking up, whether the, the sun is out or the stars are shining. We're just we're overwhelmed by our place in the universe. So I, I asked all of my kids to ask you one question. So I'd like to go through these four questions. One of my children wanted to know what the best part of going into space was for you. Well, the best part for me, because my career had been aviation and then my love had been looking at rockets, uh, is the fact that uh, I was actually doing it. Mm. I you know, on the very first flight on Gemini 7, I said to myself before the before that we took off, here I am. Uh, I, what Exactly what I wanted to do all this time. I went through aviation and now rocket technology, and here I am going into space. How did I get here? Mm. Why? Why? You know, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a father. We had no money. Uh, how did all these things happen? It's an amazing set of circumstances that led you to getting there. And, and uh, we just appreciate you spending some of this time with us talking about how you, part of the way you got there. And the second question we have for you, Jim, is do you ever get mad? Uh, this is from my son, Patrick, by the way. Did you ever get mad at the guys when you are stuck on a spacecraft with them day after day after day? So he, I think he's looking around the house. He gets mad at his brothers all the time. He wants to know, do you get mad at those other astronauts when you are stuck on this small vehicle day after day? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, because we all vied for these flights that even though you didn't like the guy you were sitting next to, you sort of, you know, t took it with a grain of salt and went ahead and did everything. And uh, No, we never did because uh, we realized that there was no sense getting mad. I mean, he, you depended on him, he depended on you. And uh, so uh, by the time he climbed into the spacecraft, you had to be very cordial with each other. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's an old joke going by that that after Gemini 7, on the, when we're on the deck of the aircraft carrier, we announced that uh, we our engagement. <laughs> <laughs> so this third one is from Henry, who uh, he wants to know, what do you do when you get scared up there? Well, yeah, to tell you the truth, you know, there's always a certain amount of... Uh, I don't know, it's being scared or being, uh, you know, wondering what's going to happen. So 
you always just suck it in, and uh, <laughs> uh, and you all hope that everything works out the way you had planned, uh, even though that you know things sometimes go awry. But you hope that it's not you know it's it's not me. It's uh, the next flight, or the or maybe it was the one past that. Mm. Jim, this question is from my six-year-old Grace. She wants to know if you could do it today, would you go back? So if you could go back up to the heavens today with one of the spaceship programs, would you do it? Would you say yes? Well, you have to realize you're talking to a guy who's 90 years old. And uh, actually, I would mind if someone asked me to go back on a regular flight. I mean, like a, another Apollo. Yes. Maybe a lot like Apollo 8 rather than Apollo uh, landing flight. Yeah, I, I think I'd take a chance. Or better still, uh, if the shuttle was still going, would you like to go back on the shuttle, which would be an Earth orbital type thing? I would like that because they give me time to think. I think those shuttle people had had time in the International Space Station to, uh, you know, to just uh, you know think about the Earth and look back on it. Uh, but uh, you know, I don't think that'll ever come to pass. Well, uh- with with your luck, who knows? I, I look forward to you uh, pushing a flag deep into the moon's surface one of these days. With nine decades of uh, experience and an incredible resume and an incredible journey that you've been on, is there one moment in time that you you kind of look back on as the the high water mark, some some pinnacle moment in your career or pinnacle moment in your life? Well, I think the high mark on my four flights. And uh, every one was unique. And, and uh, But the high was looking back at the Earth when I mentioned it, and I saw the Earth as we really were. I saw, you know, I, I suddenly realized our position in the universe mm-hmm. and uh, how fortunate we are that, that we have the ability to have uh, eyes and ears and nose and enjoy the life and see things around us. So, Captain Jim Lavelle, we have had guests on the show for uh, for years now, and uh, we've asked all of them seven questions that tie all of them together. So I'd like to wrap up our, our interview today by asking you what we call the Live Inspired Seven. And the first question is, what is the best book that you have ever read? I really don't know what the best book is. Maybe I should say the best book is the one that I wrote. How about that? <laughs> Good, good enough for me, and it is an outstanding book. And as great as the movie is, the book is far superior. So, uh, if you if you were uh, listeners, if you were moved a little bit by Jim talking about his journey, you really ought to check out his book. It's it is phenomenal. Jim, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed when you were a child that you wish you exhibited a little bit more so today? Well, I think I. I... I, I wish that maybe I was. I should be a little bit more aggressive than I was, uh, even in my space area. I think that I could have really done some more work, uh, uh, being a little bit more aggressive in my approach to to life. Uh, and uh, of course, there's always things that you think about. Oh, I wish I had done that at certain times. For instance, after Apollo eight, and we were up there. Uh, 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 talking to the Joint uh, Congress, uh, and all we're talking about our our experiences on Apollo Eight. There's things that I know now uh, that, that formulated in my brain mm. that I wish I had talked said back then, mm-hmm. but I didn't. <laughs> well, you're one of the most accomplished men of our generation, so I can't imagine you accomplishing much more than you've already accomplished. But I, I'll accept your answer. 
Uh, Jim, if your home caught fire and all living things are out, all animals, all people are safe, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what would you run in and save? And everything else is uh, okay. People are all safe and everything like that. Everybody's safe, right. I'd probably save the the term paper I wrote <laughs> in my first class year at the Naval Academy on the development of the liquid fuel rocket. Why that? Because that gave me the incentive to continue going. Hmm. Even though that, uh, you know, I, uh, I liked that. It was a the way I wanted to aim my career, uh, and uh, and it probably gave me the incentive to rebuild everything if everything else is gone. Mm. Jim, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you like to visit with? Well, uh, Charles Lindbergh was my hero at the time, back when I was uh, a young boy. And, of course, he had a lot of things that uh, turned out to be not too favorable for him. Mm. I think we could both we could both sort of uh, you know uh, think about what we accomplished because I was uh, I had escorted him on Apollo 11 on down on the beach when the spacecraft was to take off. Yes. And I said I said uh, Colonel look at that spacecraft on top of that rocket. It plans to land on the moon and he looked at it and his eyes sort of kind of gazed over I thought and I think he was thinking about his own voyage, the 340-mile or 33-hour uh, trip across the Atlantic. And he compared that with Apollo 8 and their mm. first 240,000 miles to the moon. And he said, you know, 11 is fine, but I'll remember Apollo 8. <laughs> well, it's a salute back to you, I think. What What is the best advice that you've ever received? I've received a lot of very good advice. To, well, I'll tell you what I did receive. It was that captain down there at uh, mm. at uh, training of uh, aircraft training uh, that told me to go to the Naval Academy. Because I, what I didn't tell you, when I went to the Naval Academy and I was in my second class year at the Academy, 1950, what happened? The Korean War started. Mm. And the people that I had been with in the initial going down to get my wings, they all went to sea as aviation midshipmen they were the first bit, they were uh, the first midshipmen in combat since the Civil War, and a lot of them never got their second year of college, the last two years of college. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Adventuresome, because I, 20 years, I was just entering the Naval Academy, mm. and I was, I was basically by myself uh, uh, when the years when I was up in Wisconsin, and uh, and then went down to Pensacola, and then automatically went to the Naval Academy. Uh, so I think the one thing, uh, by being a, an only boy with a, a mother that let me, you know, didn't uh, follow me or didn't, you know, want to show my career or, or anybody in the right direction, I should say, uh, I was pretty much on my own. And I think that was really a, a, mm -hmm. a plus for me to be on my own uh, in, in my life. Captain Jim Lovell, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Well, the one thing that I could be you know, remembered for is the fact that the flight to Apollo, on Apollo 8 
was like the, the many losing-like expedition, mm. and I was part of it. So if you want to remember me, just remember me as part of the exciting period of space activity, of opening up our trips to the moon and the success of the Apollo program. Captain Jim Lovell, when most people are uh, die, they dream of going to heaven. And I think today on this show, you reminded us that heaven happens when you are born. It starts right now. You have lived it, but you've also reminded the rest of us that it's true for us too. I want to thank you for your adventurous spirit, for your wisdom, for your courage, for your life, and uh, for encouraging the rest of us to be adventurous in our own lives. Thank you very, very much. Man, it, it has been a joy. So my friends, that was Captain Jim Lovell. This is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded, live-inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in Studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now. Check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time. It's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio.